This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 7th, 2022, and this is episode 285. I'm Stark Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. So you got the Rona. Yeah, I'm right now on day three of uh, having COVID, and do not recommend that. COVID kind of sucks. Officially, you probably won't have it for another week because data is now coming slowly. And also, you don't report your case anywhere, so. Yeah, I uh, looked to see if there was something to play, like the rapid test thing to get added to the they didn't they no they they aren't collecting the data yeah they got rid of that which i guess makes sense if no one was using it because they weren't promoting it that's a conversation for another day on today's show we're going to be talking about the federal housing budget bits and bobs here in british columbia news and we wrap it up with an interview i did with christine boyle and bowen ma of the new podcast the people's pod so we have a lot to cover and i hope you managed to make it through scott I'm going to be making um, liberal use of the mute button to hide the coughing. Hopefully, our editor doesn't have to do too much work. (laughs) As always, thanks to every patron who keeps this show afloat. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. But let's get into the budget to house our future A plan to grow our economy and make life more affordable. Budget 2022 is out from the federal government. There's lots in here. I went through and totaled it up. It's $32 billion of new spending over the next five, six years. The background economic picture it paints is pretty positive, which is how they try to justify the large spending, though they also try to note that this is a this is simultaneously a big spending budget, but also a cutting back to normal spending budget. We're in a very good situation. According to the budget, we have 112% of the jobs that were lost during COVID and unemployment is actually lower than when the pandemic started. So only 5.5%. That said, we're still looking at $113.8 billion deficit from last year, but they're predicting that will cut in half this year and dwindle down to a mere $8 billion by the end of the five-year vision for this. So overall, trying to get back towards that not fully balanced, not fully surplus, but to a point where we're at 0.3% GDP deficit, which is pretty marginal. It's effectively balanced. Yeah, once you're kind of under one, it's a rounding error at that point. So lots in this budget, money for housing, the economy, environment, jobs, defense and foreign affairs, healthcare, reconciliation, inclusive communities, tax fairness. We don't have time to cover it all. We'll throw a link in the show notes. Let's start with housing, though. That's a big section in here. And they were teasing, they leaked even a couple days ago that housing was going to be the big focus. $10 billion over five years. Really hard to get ahead around that scale. I looked up what BC puts into housing as a comparator, and I was sharing this in our private chat earlier, BC is spending about $1.2, $1.3 billion on housing annually. The federal government is spending about 10 and is putting an extra $2 billion 
per year for the next couple of years. So this is on the scale of the kind of investments BC is doing, which is good to see. It's still, we're in, still in such a like horrible crisis in housing that nothing feels adequate. Yeah. And it's, uh, I wish I had the information directly in front of me here, what housing construction actually is nationwide here, but it's still even 10 billion over a few years. Now, that's only part of the size of the actual housing construction space. So it's a, uh, a lot of money but also given the scale of the problem it isn't so the big chunk of the funding of for housing is four billion dollars going to this new housing accelerator fund managed by cmhc this is something they're going to use to invest in housing in a lot of different ways including supporting cities to speed up development processes the target of this is a hundred thousand net new houses over the next five years it's going to have a simple single application system that's also flexible to allow municipalities to work with them. Beyond that, there's another $1.5 billion going to the Rapid Housing Initiative. That will help build 6,000 uh, affordable housing units, 25% going to women-focused housing group projects, and then another $2.9 billion under the National Housing Co-Investment Fund to try to get another 4,300 units up and 17,800 repaired. So some of those numbers are rather small. The accelerator is like the big chunk of it. And these are what they want to try to do on top of existing goals. I think the thing that's attracting the most attention in the housing is more on the how do we help people buy housing? And that's the new tax-free savings account for home buyers. Thankfully, this is only costing $725 million because I hate it. I guess as someone who likes to optimize their personal finances and loves to dig through this sort of stuff to figure out the, the best way to, to split my savings between RSPs and TFSAs and all that. H having another thing to, to plug into the spreadsheets does excite me a bit. But yeah, it's so as a policy tool, it's a little less thrilling. So this That's has just it. I have an RESP for my kids because it's a good way for me to save for their education, but it is definitely a way for the government to help relatively comfortable people. So this is a, a savings account that will let you put in up to $40,000 tax that won't be taxed once it's in there. Not just once it's in there, it lets you put in the, the money pre-tax. So it's like your RRSP where you get a deducted off your taxes when you contribute it. And then the TFSA, you don't pay any taxes when you withdraw it on any of the gains in the account. So in that way, it's pretty good for people and I can see the benefits on the other hand, Yeah, you're right. You do actually need a fair bit of disposable income to, to take advantage of this in any real way, particularly because I think they capped it at, is it 40 years old? It's the last year you can contribute to it on that. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I don't hate it. It's it's not where I would be putting a lot of money, but not the worst idea either, though it just feels a little gimmicky. It is definitely a scheme. The Liberals are also proposing to double the first-time homebuyers tax credit to $10,000 to help people buy homes. They're also going to extend the first-time homebuyer incentive until March 2025, and they're putting a little bit of money, I just noticed, to rent-to-own projects. <laughs> Basically, it's that challenge of, we want to help people buy homes, but the homes that we want them to buy don't exist. So by giving people a little bit more incentives to buy homes, you're actually making the problem a little bit worse until those new homes are built. Yeah, it is stoking the demand side of it, which 
has been the tendency for governments across this country and over the years to do. And well, if that made housing affordable, we would have affordable housing right now. And yeah, that's that's the real big challenge. It's pumping more money in without actually building the housing that you need is going to be it. Just just is going to push up that the price of housing. And it's good they're doing some stuff with the housing accelerator fund, but it seems to be a basically trying to incentivize municipalities to add the housing they should be adding. But as I think we've mentioned before, adding new housing is already a financial winner for for cities. They aren't lacking a financial incentive to do this, which no, they need a financial incentive that outweighs the NIMBY disincentive. I think you're going to need more than $4 billion for that. There is a section that mentions leveraging transit investments and the like on that, which I don't know, potentially that means we're going to see stuff like funding for the eventual SkyTrain to UBC tied to that, tied to zoning changes locally here. But the whole section was pretty vague and they didn't come out and explicitly say that. So you're left reading between the lines and hoping that's what it is. The final two things that drew a lot of headlines in the housing section were both on the demand side. One is the two-year ban on foreigners, non-Canadians, i.e. anyone who doesn't hold citizenship or permanent residency or is a refugee international student or someone on a work permit from buying non-recreational residential properties. It was something that was in basically everyone's platform, so you kind of knew it was coming. Even though I think we both dislike the nationalist xenophobic tint of these kind of moves. Yeah, and this comes after we spent years laboring on you know, foreign buyers taxes, speculation taxes, uh, locally here, the empty homes tax and, and the like. And you know, Ontario's done similar things. And, and just if that was the route to affordability, you, you would have actually seen some change from all of that. But it hasn't really done much. Nor did the fact that when we closed our borders in 2020, started the pandemic, house prices didn't exactly revert to a reasonable level then, which one would have expected if foreign buyers were the the primary driver on housing. Turns the domestic speculators are just as big of a problem. So yeah, it, I get the politics of it. It's it makes sense in a kind of crass political way, but it's as a policy tool, it doesn't make a doesn't seem to be a particular winner, nor is it clear why two years is the time they've chosen. Like, what is magical about the third year from now where this supposed problem isn't going to exist? I guess it gives them a chance to reassess it. I don't know. It noted, and I totally missed this, that we also have an underused housing tax now. Uh, that's not a new feature in here, but it's something that those houses left underused or vacant would still be subject to. I tried to look this up. I think it was brought in or announced in January or just last year and is a 1% tax on vacant homes. The other new initiative, though, here is the flipping tax. This, thankfully, Talib Nur Mohammed, I think, is out of the business of flipping, but might have hit people like him who sell a property they have held for less than 12 months. They would then face the full taxation at a corporate tax rate on the profits of that sale. So you buy a house for a million dollars, you renovate it, or just even sit on it for 11 months, sell it for 1.3, you now owe tax on $300,000 in income. There's exemptions in here for extenuating life circumstances, and those will be finalized in draft legislative proposals. But this 
was tied in with the Liberals' campaign promise. And I think it's one that's going to be popular. But again, I can see people taking just 13 months for those renovation projects. And maybe it just helps stop some of the like pre-sale flipping or at least slow it down. Or at least it generates some money. Yeah, potentially. If you are doing flipping, the carrying costs do become an issue. So if you extending it out over 12 months rather than six, it, it does potentially discourage it beyond just making people have to wait a little longer. It alters the profit margins on there. So I can kind of see the logic there. Moving on to the climate section, this is another major set of investments in the budget. It A lot of it follows on what we talked about, what was it, just last week on the government's emissions reduction program. But here we have a lot of money for zero emission vehicles, money for carbon capture and storage, and even a little bit of money for small nuclear reactors. On the zero emission vehicles, anyone looking to buy an EV, you're in luck because now you have until March 2025 to get your $5,000 federal rebate. There's also going to be rebates for medium and heavy duty zero emission vehicles, which is good to see for getting a lot of those commercial and fleet vehicles switched over in the coming years. And there's going to be almost a billion dollars through both the Canada Infrastructure Bank and Natural Resource Canada to expand the zero emission vehicle charging networks across the country, which is definitely needed. Although I've never charged at a public station, but I've also not done a road trip yet. So I can't say how much they're needed. My, my parents have an electric car and yeah, where the charging stations are is, is definitely a factor for them. So seeing it expand, it would be good. But it's definitely not the situation where we need to replace every urban gas station with zero emission or with charging stations. Like you just charge at home or at work. It's it's a different way to drive. I like it. But I think the ZEV stuff is good. It helps the government try to meet those goals and targets they've set out for themselves to get to 100% sales by, I think we said, 2035. Like BC is leading the country on this, but we need to see everywhere else go because, you know, greenhouse gases don't care whether they come from Vancouver, Calgary, or Wayne or middle of Ontario. But Scott, to run electric vehicles, we need batteries. And there was something you noticed in actually the economic section relating to batteries. So, yeah, one thing that caught my eye under the economic section was they have a strategy for critical minerals and clean industrial strategy is what they call it and this is a thing that's noteworthy because it's it has a rare for a canadian policy document strategic look at the world and geopolitics and, and that stuff and yeah these are going to be important natural resources over the coming decades particularly as we move off fossil fuels and into evs and other high-tech stuff that requires minerals, rare earth elements, and the like. And it's interesting to see that being singled out here. And I'm not sure if recent events globally hadn't brought a lot of focus to strategic considerations, whether or not this would have been the case or would have gotten a mention. But it's uh, nevertheless good to see because this is going to be quite an important sector for Canada going forward, and we are blessed with some pretty significant mineral deposits of important materials for a whole bunch of high-tech applications, and it's a 
good to see that's getting the recognition focus that it needs to. And some significant investments. We're talking billions of dollars for supply trains, tax credits for mineral exploration. The mining sector has always been pretty big in Canada. And even when it's not necessarily active in Canada, mining giants are based here and then do their deeds around the world. With good and bad repercussions due to that, I highly recommend Catalan Commons season on mining, which was their previous one that to what they've just started for some of the darker stories of how Canada mining companies have behaved around the world. But we definitely need those rare minerals to build the batteries that are going to run our cars and run the electrical grids of the future. And so making sure we're thinking about that. Yeah, and are able to be be part of the global supply chain on that and make it so um, we're not necessarily as dependent on mineral supplies from other countries, which as we've uh, recently been witnessing when it comes to Europe and fossil fuels to be a problem when those countries don't necessarily have aligned interests. Indeed. Uh, Controversially, coming back to the environment, the clean air and a strong economy section, there's 2.6 billion over five years and then expected one and a half billion dollars annually for a refundable carbon capture tax credit system. This is a way to try to encourage companies to really invest in carbon capture and storage. It's Interesting that they phased it very front-loaded, so you get a better tax credit if you do it in the next year or two than if you do it three or four years out, which is good to see in terms of incentivize the research and development. But I'm still a little skeptical of how many companies are going to be able to do this that successfully versus where else we could potentially be putting the money in terms of decarbonization. I, I think we mentioned this last time when we were talking about the the decarbonization plan, but yeah, it's one thing to be looking at, say, coal-fired electricity and say, and talking about, okay, maybe we carbon capture that and keep running the coal plants, which is not a, a great plan at all. But there's a lot of applications for carbon-emitting technologies that are not easily replaced with electrification. And yeah, we, we should absolutely be investing in carbon capture because that may be the path that leads to us to continue to be able to produce steel and concrete and other critical materials for our economy that you can't just put up a few wind turbines and and power the process that way. So I'm happy to see it. I think carbon capture is definitely something we should be investing in, but it it should, the focus should be on industrial applications rather than fossil fuel and power generation applications. If it makes you feel better, the examples they give of where carbon capture uh, utilization and storage has helped reduce emissions includes oil and gas, chemical production, and electricity generation. Chemical production is the only one I could see that's potentially not a replaceable with electrification, depending on the uh, chemicals yeah. in question. There's lots else in here. I know the one you're definitely interested in is the investments in small modular reactors. Here they're throwing $120 million over five years starting in 2022, and then half a million dollars annually after that. Half a million? That's not uh, much. That's like a couple people's salaries. That's ongoing. So the initial investment is for Natural Resource Canada to do a lot of the research necessary to support practices, things like waste generation reductions, the supply fuel supply trains, international agreements, and then $50 million is for the Canada Nuclear Safety Commission to build capacity to regulate them. 
and then the half a million dollars will be the ongoing regulation cost. Yeah, no, it's I'm, uh, small modular reactors. I think have a lot of potential, and yeah, absolutely something we should not only be investing in, but trying to become a significant global player in the the emergent sector that is them. I am increase slightly starting to move more towards the category of are these in the realm of fusion where it's always or it's it's not as bad as fusion but it's always like a little bit further off than many of the other ways we could be spending money this isn't a huge investment and making sure that our nuclear agencies can regulate them if they do get developed by those provinces that are pushing forward seems reasonable enough for the federal government it doesn't strike me as the the same thing as fusion, or uh, because it's yeah, there's technology that's still under development there, but a lot of the stuff is existing technology that just has to go through the engineering process of actually taking that technology and developing it, working reactor designs and employing them. Jumping ahead in the healthcare section, unsurprisingly, we have the dental plan and the pharmacare promise that we're both in the liberal NDP agreement that we talked about a couple of years ago. I don't know if we really need to go through these that thoroughly, but it's... We should mention the $5.3 billion for dental care, mm-hmm. because last week or the week before last, we did speculate quite a bit on what the actual dental care price stage would be in it. Yeah, over five years, of course, what we figured at a little over a billion a year. Yeah, and the rollout is exactly as the deal said. Kids under 12 will get it this year for families who make under $90,000 and then full implementation by 2025 for the dental care. And the pharma care bill is a vague promise to have some kind of bill passed by the end of next year and then doing more work on it with no money attached. So look in next year's budget. But let's jump to this big section Canada's leadership in the world. This is our defense spending, and this is throwing money at Ukraine. Here we have more than $8 billion promised in increased defense spending over five years, most of that being $6 billion to just increasing defense and the Nas- our Department of National Defense itself, but some of it will be $240 million to culture change. This is the ongoing sexual harassment challenges facing the armed forces, there's going to be a billion to cybersecurity, and then 500 million in immediate military aid to Ukraine, and another billion dollars made in loans available to the Ukrainian government. Yeah, so this in- does increase upward the trend that our defense spend was projected to, raising to about $40 billion by the 2026 to 2027 year, fiscal year, which is a little higher than the existing defense policy had called for still keeps it under the two percent which i think a lot of people were trying were keeping an eye on to see whether or not they would hit that also quite noteworthy the budget commits to an immediate review of the canada's defense policy here which is good because the, the existing one strong secure engaged was not a policy that had, a, I think, a overwhelmingly clear amount of focus on anything or particularly grappled with the reality of the current, and at, at that point, this was 2017 policy, kind of likely developments in the global security situation. I, I was just flipping through it a little earlier today, and they didn't even have the 
what the global situation that needs to be responded to, that part didn't actually come until the third or fourth chapter in it after they'd already laid out what they wanted to spend the money on in that. So it, it, was, it was not a document that I think necessarily provided the, the focus and the clear direction that was needed. So having an updated one, particularly after the recent events, would be very good to that. I do hope we take some time on it, though. Like, to rush this in the current climate, I worry it's that kind of issue. If you develop a policy during a disaster, you're only going to have that disaster in mind, right? Like, obviously, we need to have a sense of what our policy should be, but we can't write it just in context of Russia invading Ukraine. We do need to think a little bit more broadly about the world, I would hope, or else I think minds are going to be closed to the realm of possibilities. Yeah, for sure. We don't want to uh, become, I think, too focused on Eastern Europe. The the Indo-Pacific region and the Arctic are, are two areas that are going to be quite important for us and our defense needs in the coming years. And th those absolutely should get, I think, more focused than they have been in the past. And I think we also need to make sure that the what gets written down is actually followed through on because the current policy is five years old now and several of the things they identify there are still very much not being done or, or not anywhere near as far along as they should be. Oh, this reminds me of every strategic plan at every nonprofit. I've yeah. Ever. One of the things they mentioned in there was that we the army needs to get proper air or really any air defenses after we lost that capability a, a while back when we didn't replace the aging systems that we ended up retiring. We're still pretty far away from that. And that's not exactly good if we get into a situation where we need to deploy the military where there's a near peer adversary on that. Because I, I don't know, like at this current moment, our, our best case scenario would be to scrounge up a few shoulder fire stingers, and that doesn't really do much good against fast air. <clears throat> anyway, the, the point is there's some pretty big gaps there, and an additional 8 billion is good, but much more needs to be done on that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, in this section, there is it ends with a bit on international assistance and international aid, and it talks a bit about supporting the fight against COVID and strengthening global health security. But there's not a lot in there. There's $300 million for Global Affairs Canada to address health security priorities. But otherwise, it's just continuing status quo on the international aid front. And one of the things I'm thinking about more and more is what if we're going to try and take this approach to the world, one of the things that can build you allies better than just having a military's defense is being the kind of country that supports them. Like the reason China is building so many allies around the world is because the what's their program? The Belt and Road program is so prosperous for so many countries. And it looks like strings attached, but and maybe it is, but it's also money and support for countries that need it. And and, it and where is our similar like Marshall Plan level, make the world a more prosperous and stable place. So they like us. 
And in many ways, the, the Bell Road Initiative has fewer strings attached than a lot of Western aid programs, particularly for countries that don't mind that China doesn't really uh, seem to care too much about their own internal human rights situations, which maybe not a, a direction we want to go down, but does definitely, I think, present challenge. And yeah, the global diplomacy part is a important one for sure, and being able to come in and, and do more of that kind of funding and infrastructure work would definitely be important. The other thing that uh, jumped out at me and was a fairly significant section in this was the uh, Enhancing Canada's Cybersecurity, where this budget allocates $875 million over five years, an additional $238 million in o- ongoing measures related to cybersecurity on that, including 260 3 million to enhance CSE, that's the uh, Communication Security Establishment, our agency responsible for this, to enhance their abilities to launch cyber operations to prevent and defend against cyber attacks, as well as additional 180 million for CSE to prevent and respond to cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. And additional file, I won't go through all the numbers for protecting ground corporations, as well as providing support to the private sector and this stuff. So this continues a trend we've definitely seen where cyber security and cyber operations are a significant focus of this government's security policies. Coming back to Canada, there is $10 billion put towards moving forward on reconciliation. That's split over five years. A big chunk of that $4 billion is to go over six years to enact what's called Jordan's Principle. This is the idea that when there's an indigenous child needing support who whatever government whatever agency he comes in they come in contact with first should just deal with it and pay it and you can sort out which bureaucracy is actually supposed to pay later but save the child's life should be a priority so the fact that has to be said and emphasized and requires four billion dollars to make sure it happens is quite an indictment on this country but it's good to really start to push to make the changes necessary to protect those lives. There's another $4 billion going to Indigenous housing over seven billion over seven years. That's super interesting because it adds on to what we said is a moderate, potentially, not like historic, but a sizable increase in housing spending, but still not enough. But the fact there's another $4 billion here does help. Uh, and the last thing I found really interesting in here, there's actually quite a bit in the reconciliation section, is that the government has been working with Indigenous communities along the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline uh, Corridor about next steps towards greater Indigenous participation, and those will be announced later this year, which makes me think they might sell it to an Indigenous consortium. That's definitely been something they've been hinting at for quite a while. In fact, I think they'd even said pretty much right after they bought the pipeline, that was one of the groups they were thinking of uh, selling it to once the project was completed or further along. And the final section here in, there's a lot more in the budget, of course, but the final thing, we'll just round up a couple of the ways they're going to make money and then just one or two neat things that are in the, one of the big ways they're going to make money is taxing banks. This these are things that came straight out of the liberal platform, so they shouldn't be that surprising. It's a effectively a one-time excise, a one-time excess profits tax on the largest banks and life insurers, those who 
had incomes over a billion dollars in 2021 will have a one-time 15% tax on that, and they'll have five years to pay that out. And then there'll be a permanent corporate tax increase for just those sectors of 1.5% on their incomes over $100 million. I think this could apply to all companies. If you're going to do an excess profit tax and a corporate tax increase, like no love for the banks, but grocery stores are making a ton of money. Amazon's making a ton of money. There's a lot of companies that you could go after that you don't need to just limit it to the banks. But it's how the liberals wanted to set themselves apart from the NDP. And they are also going to throw another $1.2 billion at the CRA to beef up audits over the next seven years. And they expect that to recoup $3.4 billion. Found it interesting. They say that for every dollar they give to the CRA to go after tax cheats, they get five dollars back. So, good investment there. Yeah, no, fun, funding the tax police definitely has its benefits. The only cops I support, except when they go after the low income earners. They need the money to go after the big whales. If you are a non alcoholic beer drinker, you won't have to pay an excise tax anymore. So, cheaper near beer for you. And we have also committed to a few legislative changes to facilitate our participation in the Lunar Gateway to go to the moon. Interestingly, this includes changing the criminal code because I guess what was in the, the criminal, criminal code, code that prevented this? A, a couple lawyers have told me there are space sections to our criminal code and I haven't had the time to look it up yet. But I guess Canada law, criminal law may or may not apply to space. I think this has to deal with if Canadian astronauts are on the space station, which like criminal law applies. Like if there's a murder on the space station, it's not international waters, I guess. Anyway, yeah, that's maybe the budget. Oh, yeah, there's a space station section there. It might have to say space station and lunar gateway now. That might Yeah, be they're probably going to have to change that up to, yeah, expand it out. To, I would have just said, that, why specify space station? Why not just any space-based vessel or the like? I'm not. A criminal lawyer, Scott, I don't know. Or a space lawyer, which probably one of a the cooler... A space crime lawyer. Yeah. <clears throat> probably well, one of the cooler specialties in the law. That's the budget. There's so much more in it. We'll have to see how it draws reactions. We already know it's going to pass because I don't see anything in here the NDP is going to, say, surprise them. They knew bud defense spending was coming and they didn't want to see it hit 2%, so they got that. The rest of their priorities seem to be here, or at least enough of them that this will pass. I was actually going to say, like, other than the dental care, there isn't actually a huge amount in here that really screams NDP on a lot of this stuff. But the housing stuff was all pretty much lifted from the Liberals' own platform. Um, but we went over this. The deal was mostly Liberal platform items. Yeah, I'm just saying, for like the NDP, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of wins they can come away with this from in terms of selling to the uh, their base that we're getting a lot out of this deal if they're a lot of liberal platform ones rather than NDP ones that are making it through here. <clears throat> the only other bit of federal politics news I'll note, we don't have time to get into it and neither of us have read up enough on it, is that the federal government introduced its major legislation to force Facebook and Google and really potentially any site that hosts links that is large enough for the government to care to have to pay news outlets that it links that they link to. But you'll have to get together and make deals. And if you don't make deals, the CRTC will make you make a deal. It's a weird system. It's based off the Australian model. We'll put a CBC link in the show notes and we'll hopefully come back to this. And in the meantime, go check out Michael Geist complaining about it or 
Jesse Brown on Canada Land complaining about it, or I don't know, read any newspaper and they're happy about it. Jumping over to BC politics for a quick roundup of what's happened this week, because it's actually been pretty eventful here in the province, in the legislature as well. Uh, a number of new bills came forward. We'll talk about two of them. First, the government is going to allow the BC Transportation Financing Authority to purchase land within 800 meters of designated transit stations and bus exchanges to build housing. Good. Yeah. This is essentially allowing the Transportation Crown Corporation to be a bit more flexible in what it does. Right now, they can only buy land to build transit stations, but that isn't what ne a city necessarily needs Yeah, because they do want to build transit-oriented developments. And sometimes the cities aren't always as cooperative or encouraging of it or even have the cash to do it. Yeah. Not only that, there are definitely places around the world where the transit itself gets funded by the development that it enables on top of it. Hong Kong, I think, is the, the most commonly cited example, but there are others. And this is a potential way to get around the problem of how do you find the funds to build out all the transit infrastructure that you know, Translance identified that they want in their 2050 plan that they announced earlier this, this year. Yeah, I think it was earlier this year or end of last year on that. And yeah, one way to do it is buy a bunch of land around where the SkyTrain's gonna go, build the SkyTrain, build a whole bunch of housing on top of it, and the revenues from the housing support the construction of the SkyTrain, and you're less dependent on three levels of government managing to come to the table and figure out their funding model on a case-by-case -case basis like happens now. The big criticism here is that these projects would still be subject to local zoning. The government's current argument is that municipalities will be far more amenable to the provincial government or the transportation agencies coming with a development application than potentially local developers. And you could imagine that the NIMBY arguments change a bit or they weaken. It's like when a nonprofit development comes forward, there's still arguments against it quite often, but they aren't always as... Um, sharp or as strong. Oh, no. They, they, that said, I've been to those public hearings. They are definitely as sharp and as strong. Feature extra conspiracy the right theories word. about how the, uh, the nonprofit is secretly pocketing all the revenues from this. It, it, they, they get weird, bizarre, and more than a little toxic. The weird, bizarre conspiracy theory I want to have is that the government has introduced this now so that TransLink or whoever can buy up a bunch of land and then on the current zoning, and then the government can introduce a bill where the provincial government can just, by fiat, change zoning or eliminate zoning, and then it effectively upzones its own land, imp increasing the value of it, and just like nets itself at its, its own money that it just created out of speculation. That's what I'm hoping for, at least. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're both in room. This is a pretty good uh, change, and it also. 800 meters is huge. I mapped it out, and just with the SkyTrain stations in Vancouver, they can cover a significant chunk of the city. Yeah, so that's uh, not an arbitrary number they've chosen. 800 meters is the rule of thumb for what a rapid transit station's watershed is. So if you're going to do it, 800 meters is the, the obvious distance to select. But yeah, you're right. This does cover a huge amount of East Vancouver and as well as a decent amount of what's of the west side too, particularly with the new SkyTrain and the, uh, the Candle Line. The other big bill that came in this week 
ignoring the municipal offenses one that we'll talk about on Cambio Report, or I will, is card check surprised everyone. Is it a surprise uh, though? I, gonna... I feel like this is one of those things. It's a surprise that it came in now. Yeah, because this is one of those things that uh, pretty much every time the government changes, they flip back and forth on this one. Yeah, and the only reason they couldn't do it earlier is because the Greens didn't like it. So this is the rule where right now, if you want to form a union at your workplace, you need to get a bunch of people to sign union cards saying they want a union. And then if they hit a certain threshold, you have a secret ballot where you need 50% to form a union. What they'll change it to is if 55% of employees sign a membership card, that's effectively the vote. That is the vote in that people have said, we want to be a union. A clear majority has done it. They're a union. And this is how it works in some provinces. And like you said, it worked in, it was the way it worked in BC from 1972 when the NDP was first elected, actually until 84. The SoCreds under Bill Bennett didn't eliminate it right away. And then from 93 until 2001, when the NDP was in government again. The NDP argues that this increases unionization, makes it easier to join a union, protects rights. I'm largely supportive. It's fairly clear that if a majority have already signed these cards, that a majority supports it and requiring a second certification is just a chance for an employer to really lean on employees to not do the thing. There is also provision here where if only 45 to 55% sign cards, they can go to a secret ballot for certification. The other half of this bill would allow construction workers to switch unions annually, rather than I guess sometimes they're stuck in the same union for up to three years. And the government notes that sometimes someone might be on a uh, construction contract that only lasts a year or two, and then they're still stuck with the union they had to join that project, and now they can't join another project. I think this is all about CLAC, the Christian Labor Association of Canada, which is largely known as the union or the boss's union, and the one that the government won't recognize as a real union because it's not. And so, if you want to work a government contract, you need to be able to get out of CLAC. And this is that, I guess. I don't know labor law quite well enough to know the ins and outs in that, but that's what I've been able to suss. This will pass because the government has a majority. Independent businesses are already mad and yelling and screaming about it and labor is happy to see it yeah it'll get switched back again with the uh government's change because it's this is one really one of those things where it's just uh different philosophies uh between the two parties just governed on this one and yeah i don't know i i don't mind the secret ballot If, if it's good enough for uh voting for governments it's uh seems to be good enough for uh to sign on a union too, but I don't know. Like I said, it's one of these policies that's just in a yo-yo. Unions are also proving to be a little bit of a challenge for the government today, as the BCGEU has said that their talks in finding a contractor at an impasse. It's hard to tell what this will mean if all the BCG, they've been trying to find a contract for a little while now. The GEU is asking for a cost of living uh, increase at the Canada-wide inflation rate or 5%, whichever is greater for two years. The government is offering 1.75% increase this year and then 2% each of the next two years. I think that initial offer from the government is what a lot of the other public sector unions got. And it seemed more reasonable two or three years ago when inflation wasn't so bad. But now with 4 to 5% inflation rates, you have to look at it and go, if you get a 2% increase, you're getting a Wait, you're getting a cut in your real wages at the end of the day. 
And so I see the union's argument, but I also understand the government not wanting to suddenly have to pay all of its workers 5% more. Yeah, and it's 5%. And I don't, yeah, it's cost of living or five, the, the, whichever is greater is a pretty key part of that. Does, if inflation is 3% net here, they, they would be paying 5 in that case. And 5% compounding year after year starts to get unsustainable at some point. They might be happy with cost of living this year and three or four I, they just want to see a bigger wage increase and there's a big gap here which i can get i can understand why that's going to be frustrating so keep an eye on that neither of us are super in on how these negotiations ought to go but a bcgeu strike would be a pretty big deal and finally i don't think we actually even have time to get into this because we still need to get over to our interview but the annual financial reports are out on how the political parties in BC did last year in fundraising and even has their full balance sheets and everything. Uh, I broke down some of the numbers in Slack, but just quickly, the NDP raised 3.6 million, the BC Liberals raised 1.4, and the BC Greens raised 1.1 million is the top line number in direct contributions. Yeah, the, the Liberals aren't doing great there, though a fair bit that's probably because the uh, leadership campaign sucked up a lot of the donations that otherwise would have gone to uh, political parties. Yeah, when I dug into the balance sheets, the Liberals actually had a pretty healthy surplus last year because they do get more money from the per vote subsidy than the Greens do. And they had a few other sources of income that helped. So they did have a surplus of four and a half million last year and the NDP had a surplus of 5.8. The Greens only had $900,000 in surplus. That said, both the Liberals and Greens are sitting on $2.6 and $2.2 million in um, accumulated surplus, the difference between their assets and liabilities, versus the NDP is sitting on a chest of $9 million. So we are in a weird, different era of politics in this province since the change in fundraising rules and the you know end of the Liberal government, where the NDP is now like, fundraising force and the greens are actually doing quite impressive for their own part but they still have a lot of disadvantages of being that th small third party yeah, that they'll have to overcome it's been this way for a couple of years now though that didn't stop the the ndp from running on the the liberals are the party of big money in the last campaign even though they'd been out fundraising them for several years at that point i still get fundraising emails from the ndp talking about how well funded the liberals are and how big of a threat they are and i'm just like the, the liberals wish they were as well funded be. as the ndp claim they are and I, I wish the ndp was as left as the liberals claim they are so we're all disappointed all the time aren't we with that let's throw it over to the conversation i recorded last month with bcmla bowen ma and vancouver city councillor christine boyle about their new podcast people's pod politics for the people and a reminder you can hear the other half of my conversation with them on the Canby Report episode that should also be coming out today, Friday, when you're listening to this. Joining me now is Christine Boyle and Bowen Ma, the co-hosts of the new podcast, Politics for the People. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah. So you are starting a new podcast. Before we get into that, many of our listeners will probably know, Bowen, you're the MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale. I didn't actually write this down, so I'm just like going off memory. I hope I got that right. Yes. And Christine Boyle is a counselor in the city of Vancouver. Why did you decide to start a podcast? So Bowen and I have been talking a lot about 
learning as we go in these jobs and and how much we both recognize it it matters that the public understand both what our jobs are and how the political system works so they can better get involved in it. Yeah. And so we talked about basically finding a way to share our experiences so that they're not simply lost inside ourselves, but that other people are able to benefit from it. So the goal of our podcast is to effectively demystify government to help engage people who have never been involved before or who are on the edges of political engagement and those who are wanting to get more involved. And basically, we're looking to provide some insights that we hope will be useful to other advocates and activists looking to create social change. Do you feel like there was a void? Would this have been helpful? These kind of conversations have been helpful for you before you decided to make the plunge into electoral politics? Oh, God, yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) When I first took made the decision to consider making the plunge into electoral politics. It started with months and months of tons and tons of meetings with a whole variety of people from current and past elected official activists, people who were involved in party politics, people who weren't involved in party politics. And every meeting was about just trying to understand what their perspective was on the process and that world that I was considering getting myself into. And from there, I had to distill all of that information into what was or was not relevant to me. And it was an incredibly valuable experience, but it did take an enormous amount of time. And I had at the time the benefit of having many months to think about this, whereas in a snap election or in a lot of even general elections, people don't have that much um, time to think whether or not they want to run for politics. They've got to make a decision pretty quick if it's coming up next month or two. Yeah. And a a lot of the podcast responds to questions that both of us get often. I often get asked, what's the job actually like? What's a day or a week like as a city councillor? Or what would it look like to get involved in a campaign? How do I do that? So in part, we have tried to answer those more common questions that we both get asked and are more than happy to to talk one-on-one with people about, but that we certainly had a sense for ourselves and the other people is information that folks are looking for. Yeah, I would say that I regularly hear from people who are asking for an hour to just pick my brain about what it's like to get into politics. And, and that happens to Chris as well. So why not combine the, all those talks into one podcast that everyone can listen to whenever they want? So it's really just that like FAQ form for all those questions that I'm not going to say you've been annoyed by. I'm sure you're both happy to have those questions, but it's a time saver, right? Yeah, I love having those conversations, but can't have as many of them as would be valuable. So this is like a starting place. Yeah. And I would also say that rather than it being really an FAQ format, like Chris and I did take the time to storyboard this out. Like what kinds of themes do we need to talk about? What aspects of the involvement do we need to cover? And in order to try to condense all of our experiences into the six episode miniseries format, we really had to be quite judicious about what it is that we did want to to make sure we got into these 45-minute to hour-long episodes and what we could probably leave for a future podcast if people are really that interested. Yeah, and we wanted it to be accessible, and there's probably a bunch of information in there that some listeners will know already, but 
we wanted to make sure for someone newly exploring political involvement, we're not leaving any gaps. So I've had a chance to listen to the first couple episodes, which are those very introductory episodes. What is this podcast about? And why did you both get into politics? And what is your backstory? Beyond that, what you mentioned there's a six episode arc. What are the like major themes that listeners can expect to hear? Great question. So the first episode is about how we got here and some of our own stories. The second episode is what the work looks like, what a week in the life of both of our jobs looks like. The third and fourth episodes are my favorite, and they're a pair. The third episode is about making change from the inside and what we're learning, working inside government in terms of how change happens from that position. And then the fourth is about making change from the outside and what we've learned and observed from our positions in government about what makes effective social change, advocacy, and activism from outside of government. Our fifth episode then talks about the actual process of running in an election or being involved in an election. And episode six is an Ask Us Anything wrap up. The story arc is it's it was very deliberate for us to leave the episode about running for office to later in the podcast, because I think that when people think about a political podcast and you're going to learn what it's like to be in it, instinctively, we thought, oh, we would just put the election episode up front, right at the front of the podcast. But after some storyboarding and some discussion, we realized that we really wanted this podcast to be about civic engagement. And elections are only a part of that civic engagement. Elections are the, like, if you're deciding to run in an election, that should be driven by your desire to create social change. And there are other ways to do that as well. And we want to really emphasize that. And so that's why we started the first episode about how we got here. We shared our personal stories about how we became politically activated, because sometimes you'll get politicians, elected officials who decide to run after having um, been through a lifetime of political activism. And then sometimes you'll have people who are like me who have never been political and found my way into it as an adult and had to learn very quickly what all of this meant. And that's okay. That range is what we want to really have people understand is, I guess, what we're trying to say is you don't have to have a political pedigree to be involved in politics here in BC. And as Bowen said, the sixth episode is a kind of grab bag of questions. So we're inviting folks to send us questions. I'm sure there's stuff we haven't covered enough of in the earlier episodes. And so we'll see what we get and and do our best to answer all of those questions for our last uh, episode of the miniseries. So I want to rewind a little bit in time and just figure out how exactly we got here. So you both had this idea of you've been facing these questions from constituents from supporters from people in the public who want to know more about politics and you want to talk more about it who actually came up with the idea to do a podcast like we were talking about that recently neither of us can remember it's been maybe a year in the making we've been talking about this and then both of our schedules are pretty demanding and so we just kept not quite being able to get it off the ground we liked the idea we've met with some people we've got some advice it took a while yeah. To know. Yeah, I, I really don't exactly remember how this idea started, but I do remember an all afternoon meeting that Chris and I had at a restaurant over 
beers where we met with three different people back then, back to back, uh, and drank a lot of beer to explore the concept of doing a podcast and get ideas on it. And I think that was August of last year, July. Yeah, it was sunny enough that I biked home. That's right. And, and I had a lot of Radlers is what I remember. Sure. Yeah. And then it took until January to set some dates. Liz and Kate, who are our amazing volunteer production team, have really made it possible um, to go from an idea Bowen and I talked about to an actual thing with real microphones and decent yeah. sound quality and, and all of the above. I would say what really made our idea, this concept, a reality was the fact that Kate Milbury and Liz Hunter agreed to come on as our volunteer production team. Before that, it was just, I don't know, an idea. Chris and I knew that we could do a lot of talking, but we would not have the capacity or the the resources on our own to to actually put the podcast together. Well, and plus you have the wonderful studio space over there at the North Vancouver Public Library. It's always good to shout out. That's right. The City of North Vancouver Public Library. For a little while, it was capacity limited, so we couldn't use this space. But now we can, and it is gorgeous. And just so I have hometown loyalty here, the VPL <laughs> Central Branch, also amazing public libraries all across the country, amazing resources for this type of thing. Go public libraries. I guess the last questions I'll ask on this segment, and then I encourage all of our listeners to jump over to the Canby Report to listen to the second half of this conversation, where maybe we'll get into a bit more of the nitty-gritty advice and thoughts. Let's talk about some of your favorite moments in creating this. Like, you're not fully finished the process yet. I, we're recording in March 11th right now. You're going to do episode five, and you have a bit more, and you have the release to come. But what have you enjoyed most about this so far? I have loved that it's an all-woman team. And that none of us have really, Chris and I have been on podcasts before, but we haven't produced a podcast ourselves. Kate and Liz, for Kate and Liz, this is also their first podcast. We've been learning together, and that's been really wonderful. I've also really appreciated that, like, I, I reflect on, on the time that when we recorded our episode over at Kate's house and she had her kids in the house. And her kids were running around upstairs and you know, they're going in and out of the home and we needed quiet. And we basically had to take into account the fact that she is a mother with children and coordinate the schedule accordingly. And that's a perspective that I think we had hoped to bring in the creation of this podcast, the perspective of being women legislators, a woman of color, a mother of young children, like it's a perspective that is, I think, often missing in, in a lot of political podcasts out there. Yeah, I would add to that. I agree the human element of it has been strong throughout, and I have really enjoyed learning from Bowen. I have been in government three and a half years at the local level, but there's so much I still have to learn it in my own sphere, but also in terms of how things work at the province. And so the very human stories and reflections that I've gotten to hear from Bowen through the conversation have been really rich for me. And, and I think we've enjoyed that. Together. Is there going to be a season two? I know you've barely finished the first one. We had in very intentionally 
time limited this project so that it was a chunk that we knew that we could bite off and chew and actually digest. Uh, so the sick mini series was intended to to be something we could accomplish. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the reception is and, and what the demand is and also what our time capacity looks like in, in the future. Yeah, I think we've enjoyed doing it and we want it to be useful, not just a project of hearing our own voices. So we're interested <laughs> to see what people say in response and, and we'll have more conversation after that. In the meantime, we are avid listeners of other people's podcasts and we'll keep doing that. Yes. And I would say that we got pretty sick of our own voices pretty early on. I'm <laughs> looking forward to, to finishing that sixth episode. I'll just say you're lucky you have other people editing you because the, I've edited so many of my own voice and you just learn all of your vocal tics and it's soul crushing and you just learn like I say I know a lot that's oh, weird yeah. even just re-listening to episodes I find difficult sometimes for that reason so our editors amazing huge gratitude to them yes so where can people find the podcast it will be on Buzzsprout and then through there on all the places where you find podcasts. Yeah. Uh, see, this is how new we are to the podcasting world. We will also have a, a website, peoplespod.ca. And you right. can find Bowen and I on all of the social media channels and send us questions for episode six there or at questions at peoplespod.ca. Questions, questions at, people's at peoplespod.ca. Yeah, send us questions, find us on social media, on the website or all the places that podcasts are. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.